Welcome to the International Human Rights Committee podcast, Perspectives. Lawyers in the state of Texas whose clients are involved in international business may be confronted more frequently with the human, legal, and reputational risk associated with violations of internationally recognized human rights. The State Bar of Texas created the International Human Rights Committee, IHRC, in August 2015, the first of its kind among state bars, with the goals to study legal issues related to international human rights, inform Texas lawyers of these issues, and provide guidance to these Texas lawyers. Hi, my name is Josh Newcomer. Uh, welcome to the second ever webcast of the International Human Rights Committee of the State Bar of Texas's International Law Section. The International Human Rights Committee is the first state bar committee in the United States dedicated to international human rights, and in particular to providing guidance to practicing lawyers whose clients are involved in international business and confronted with human legal and reputational risks associated with violations of internationally recognized human rights. I'm a principal in the Houston office of McCool Smith. My practice focuses on commercial litigation and in many instances uh, involving trade or cross-border elements. I'm also a board member of Freedom Now. Freedom Now is an NGO uh, based in DC and London, and it focuses on freeing prisoners of conscience through focused legal, political, and public relations advocacy. Uh, these are individuals who are imprisoned uh, because they've exercised fundamental freedoms, such as freedom of religion, expression, and association. If you're interested, you can uh, find out more by visiting freedom-now.org. Today's podcast is uh, happening on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of the United Nations Guiding uh, Principles on Business and Human Rights. We're recording this webcast at the end of May, and it will be released in June on the 10th anniversary. Uh, it is hard to believe that it's already been 10 years since the guiding principles were released. Uh, they were adopted unanimously by the Human Rights Council. Uh, to a certain extent, they have uh, changed the way businesses, uh, international businesses operate, and in particular, the way in which they incorporate uh, recognized human rights and due diligences uh, into their operations. Uh, they don't have mandatory enforcement, but despite the lack of mandatory enforcement, they have been widely adopted by companies uh, on a voluntary basis in many industries. Uh, in addition, as everybody viewing this is aware, I'm sure the 10th anniversary comes uh, during the COVID pandemic, which is still ongoing internationally. And that has highlighted significant fragility of uh, the supply chain and of labor rights worldwide. So we thought there's no better time uh, than present to reflect on the 10 years of the guiding principles, uh, their achievements, their shortcomings, and where we may see them go in the future. We've gathered two experts with very different backgrounds uh, to better understand their perspectives on the guiding principles, the UNGPs, uh, throughout the past 10 years. Martin Luff is uh, an attorney at Vincent Elkins, where he serves as counsel in the firm's employment, labor, and OSHA group. He's licensed to practice in both Texas and England uh, and spent several years uh, in Viennese Houston office before returning to London where he is currently. He has counseled clients for over 15 years on a full range of labor and employment matters with a particular emphasis on advising uh, employment aspects of multinational transactions. We also have returning with us here 
uh, Dean Slocum. He is the founder and president of Acorn International. That is a global consultancy specializing in working with industry, investors, and governments to create sustainable solutions to social and human rights risks. He's a sociologist by training, uh, and for the past 38 years, he has been evaluating social and human rights risks and developing and implementing management plans to help mitigate and manage those risks uh, for development projects and for assets uh, of various companies worldwide. He's a former uh, Society of Petroleum Engineers distinguished lecturer, expert witness, and frequent publisher and speaker on the subject of business responsibilities for human rights. So I'd like to welcome you both. I'm excited to have both of you here. Nice to be here. Great. Having uh, done that intro, I'd like to jump straight to you, Dean. You know, in crafting the guiding principles, we saw an interesting dynamic uh, at the UN uh, where there was the body, the commission, was careful to distinguish between the responsibilities for businesses to respect human rights, governments to protect those rights, and both to uh, remedy violations of those rights. Uh, from your perspective, what has the business community and, and any businesses you want to discuss in particular learned about managing the balance of these responsibilities in the decades since the, the guiding principles were issued? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Joshua. And thanks for the very nice introduction. This is something we can talk about for a long time. So I'll try to uh, keep focused and we can go back and follow, have follow-up questions. And certainly Martin will have some good perspective on it. But to answer the question, let me go a little bit further back and provide some little background. So we, we, you know, 10, 20 years ago, human rights were were discussed, right? People, the companies were aware of human rights, particularly where they're in conflict zones. I, for example, I, back in the 1990s, I worked with BP in Colombia, where they're being accused and censored by the European, considered being censored by the European Parliament for alleged misdeeds uh, related to the use of private security forces in Colombia, which were um, alleged to be um, intimidating local local people and and causing um, violence there. And um, and so that was a human, we, we, didn't, we didn't have the human rights, sorry, we didn't have the voluntary principles. We didn't have the guiding, the UN guiding principles back then to lean on. So BP said, well, you know, this is something that we have to, we have to take on ourselves, but we have to figure out how to do it, right? 10 years ago, when the UN commission issued these guiding principles, there was a lot of uncertainty, right, about from, from both companies and from industry, sorry, from uh, governments about how they would be applied. But, but really, they were greatly welcomed, I think, overall by industry. And the reason is because the genius of these guiding principles is that they sought to really clearly delineate the responsibilities of business to respect human rights versus governments to protect human rights. And it talked about how that's done. Now, obviously the devil's in the details and that needs to be defined, but, but that laid the ground for um, industry and governments, which back then and still don't always work well together, right? Um, to really kind of understand their roles and then to say, okay, now that we understand these roles, let's figure out how we work together so that we can make sure these solutions are, are sustainable. Martin, you know, uh, Dean mentioned the uncertainty and that the devil's in the details. From the, the perspective of the legal community, has there been any significant legal developments since the promulgation of the, the guiding principles that have provided more certainty or uncertainty? What have the legal developments been? 
I think um, there, there certainly have, um, Josh. It's it's one of these areas. It reminds me of the uh, uh, Hemingway quote about, um, you know, how did you go bankrupt? Two ways: gradually, then suddenly. And I think the legal <laughs> developments have have come along those lines. I think there are a lot of people who practice in this area, attorneys in lots of different practice specialisms who either have been generally aware of these issues or, or, or maybe sort of have more experience in them, who found over the course of the last several years, it's become a far more prominent part of their practice. It's something that their clients are, are suddenly more interested in. And from a law- lawyer's perspective, the, the guiding principles, I mean, as, as Dean was outlining, are, are, are really that, they're principles. So what we as lawyers call soft law, and I think when they were first um, drafted and announced and people started looking at them, I mean, I think the legal profession may not have been as closely focused on them because they were not hard law. They were not statutes. They were not clear enforcement mechanisms there where, where jurisdictions were passing laws with clear obligations and consequences for failing to, to, to comply with those. And so it, it has developed over time, but... Um, very recently, there's been you know, the floodgates have opened. I think, and I think we're seeing a clear uh, movement towards what we would think of as lawyers as as hard laws, and increasingly with consequence for failing to comply with them. So we start you know, with the guiding principles. I think when you read those documents, a lot of it makes sense. But what does it mean to lawyers? Why should they care about it? I think, as, as you mentioned, I'm in London, so the UK Modern Slavery Act was a, was a great interest to a lot of my clients in the UK, because all of a sudden it was a law focused on reporting and transparency. Um, and there are some, some concerns about whether or not it, it has enough teeth for people to care about it. But some of the key aspects of it were um, that it was a, a statute that had a lot of extraterritorial effects. So a lot of um, my clients who are US headquartered clients were suddenly finding themselves uh, covered by this law and it had pretty low compliance uh, thresholds. And so a lot of companies started rolling out their policies, focusing on what this law meant in practical terms. And that, I mean, I see certainly in terms of my experience, that was something that I became very aware of. And then many more laws have followed uh, Canada uh, has developed a very similar law. Australia, uh, likewise. France has um, more recently put into place this corporate duty of vigilance uh, law, which has got similar principles around reporting, transparency, due diligence. And um, But all of a sudden, those have real financial consequences under the French law. Um, you know, there, it goes all the way potentially to criminal liability, but certainly very significant civil fines for companies that don't, um, don't comply. And the European Union, likewise, has, has been developing uh, recent regulations, uh, again, around these due diligence um, uh, principles. And the United States, also SEC reporting due diligence, ESG regulations, all of a sudden they're cropping up on the radars of, of lawyers, I think across, across the world, but certainly in the UK and the US. And I'm finding that increasingly with my colleagues in Texas, across practice groups, we're suddenly focusing on these new laws um, uh, that are coming into, into effect. You mentioned the fact that they started out as soft laws and so many things that emerge from from the UN, frankly, are, are soft principles, soft laws. Dean, there was still opposition at the beginning. How have companies taken those soft laws and 
uh, at initially the soft laws and incorporated them into their practices? Or is it more the hard laws, the, the legal regimes put in by the individual companies that are motivating them? Well, you know, over the last 10, but particularly over the last three to five years, a lot of companies have implemented human rights policies, right? And certainly been very, very careful about what they put in those policies because then they're, they could be, Martin could speak to me, you could speak to this. All the participants listening to this could speak to it better than me, but there are obviously legal implications of what you put in your policy. But, but nonetheless, most very large, you know, Fortune 500 companies have elected to, yes, to put that down, their intentions, their, their, what they expect to be held accountable for in a human rights policy. So that takes it from the realm of soft law into, um, into hard. We've also seen, not hard, in, into corporate policy. We've also seen cases, particularly throughout Latin America, where companies have been challenged legally for operating in a way that is in violation of, for example, the voluntary principles for security and human rights, where a government, the government of Colombia, for example, has signed on as a signatory of that, of that resolution. And so the, 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 the claimant has said, you know, you are violating Colombian law because you are not complying with the voluntary principles. So, so there have been challenges again and again. You know, participants will be much more familiar with that than I. So, so that is um, that's another way that I think law, soft law has been hardened a bit. And then the third way, of course, is the legal challenges. And we talked about this before, Joshua, the number of lawsuits that have been brought on uh, human slavery cases in Ethiopia, uh, the famous Apple case in uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, in terms of of those ways that they have sort of converted from soft law to either corporate policy or, or hard law. Um, what have, in your mind, Dean, been some of the most impactful successes that the businesses have undertaken to address human rights? I'm going to answer that a little bit differently, if you don't mind, Joshua. I think Please. I would like to talk about what's, what kind of challenges they've run into, because that will reveal, I think, some of the, some of the successes that companies have had. In my view, that the real challenges that companies have had now that, that they've had some success in understanding and using the, the guiding principles uh, are the challenge, kind of three, three key challenges. Understanding what their responsibilities are along the edge of respect versus protect. You know, where they need to go beyond, in certain cases, the responsibility to respect human rights into the government's responsibility to protect human rights in order to maintain the uptime of their operations, uh, enhance their reputation uh, or protect their reputation. So I'll come back to that one. The second one is on due diligence. As Martin said, that's becoming more and more um, uh, defined through legislation. And that's a real welcome advance, I think, for, for business, even though you might hear some pushback on it. Um, you know, anything that's, less, that's more predictable is typically welcomed. Um, the question about due diligence is how far into your supply chain do you go? And that's a thorny issue that we, we spend a lot of time working with our clients to try to help understand. So there's two good tests in our view is making a risk-based decision about which suppliers you look at in human rights due diligence. And then the second one is looking at over which suppliers you have operational control. And there are definitions out there that we can, we can lean on to define what does operational control mean. So that's the second one. And the third one is, you know, what are responsibilities for, for remedy? When we when we find a human rights violation that we uh, may that may be impacting our um, our operations or our host communities, so so I'd like to talk about that um, the division between the respect protect boundary a bit um, either now or if you wanted to touch touch base on it in the um, 
in a future question because I think it's important for the solutions. Sure. Why don't Why don't you jump into it now and then I'll okay. kick it to Dean for for uh, I'll kick to Martin. Sorry for a similar sort of yeah yeah. So and this gets to your original question, um, Josh, about um, what you know what kind of success have companies had? And so I think they've companies have been able to use the the guiding principles to really understand what does it mean to respect human rights and where are the responsibilities. Um, and due diligence has has been human rights due diligence exploded and the, the rigor of due diligence assessment uh, protocols has exploded as well. So it's quite strong. So people know, know how to do due diligence and around human rights and, and what they're going to get out of it. Um, but where the challenge has been, I think, typically is where you have a case where, um, such as Chevron and Myanmar, for example, right, where they're operating in a country, um, they have their operations are, you know, fully conformant with the guiding principles, except that they're in a very, uh, you know, in a, in a, within a political environment that is not, you know, right? so what is their responsibility then to address that? Uh, according to the guiding principles, they don't have a responsibility, but according to their shareholders, well, maybe they do, right? So I think government companies in that those situations have understood how do we say, how to dance along that really delicate edge between respect and protect and look at the situation and say, if we are going to uh, continue operations in this place um, and we're going to try to help the, the host government along to improve their human rights records, it would be a mistake for us to, to do nothing, right? So let's try to figure out how we can help governments build the capacity, right? Or monitor themselves or provide training mechanisms um, that they can apply to try to improve their own human rights uh, practices. So I think that's been a real success. We've seen that in many, many cases. Have there been voluntary direct efforts to remedy human rights violations, say within a within a supply chain in a country who's not providing legal? Uh, Absolutely. Um, the best case is where companies have, for example, they might have a supplier who is such a strategically important supplier that they can't afford to, to lose that supplier. But that supplier has been alleged to be using slave labor, for example. So companies have uh, voluntarily exercised due diligence. This has happened in China, obviously. It's happened in Brazil, the two cases that we're, we're most familiar and most involved in, um, where companies have said, look, we, we, you know, we can't afford Obviously we can't, but you know we don't. You know this is a really profitable business for us. Um, we, this is a strategically important supplier. We need to know what's going on there, and we need to help. If we find evidence of slavery, we need to do what we can to try to help them uh, remedy that. And so, in the case in Brazil, for example, they did find conditions analogous to slavery, right? So, as defined in in Brazilian law, and uh, we were able to go and help them with improving contracts, putting in self-auditing programs that we then monitored, doing training within their own operations, and then um, developing grievance mechanisms that their workers could use to, to make sure. So with those kind of four aspects of remedy, which would, were voluntarily done by, the, by, the, uh, by the, the international company that was using the supplier. That's interesting. Martin, you, know, you mentioned earlier, and I think it, it builds on what Dean just said, that countries, nations are starting to pass legislation with greater extraterritorial applicability than maybe traditionally was done or that, that some businesses might expect. Um, and it seems like we have sort of this, this dynamic internationally where you have nations now trying to extend their protection of human rights beyond their border. And, and as Dean just described, companies 
yielding influence in areas that they previously maybe would not have gone. What have you been advising your clients regarding extraterritorial application of these laws? Is that a trend we should expect going forward? You know, how do you manage that uh, in your transnational practice? Yeah, that's um, there, there's several themes in what Dean was talking about that um, echo pretty loudly in my mind. When I think about the conversations that I've had with um, in-house counsel at our corporate clients, with our you know, HR um, executives, um, you know, it, around due diligence, around supply chains, around policy. I mean, the supply chain issue is, is certainly when you look at the hard laws, one of the sea changes here is that these that, that corporations cannot just be looking at their own within their own four walls. They have to look far broader, far deeper into their supply chains. Now, we have a lot of clients who operate directly in all sorts of countries around the world that have you know, that if you look at the heat map, they're right in the red of, of where human rights violations can, can arise in in the energy industry, certainly close to Houston's heart. Um, in chemicals and things like that. But then there are a whole lot of other industries where the supply chain is where the issue is. And you know, from a, from a traditional corporate perspective, you would say, well, those are our suppliers. Those are a different corporate entities. They have different liabilities. That stuff gets put on a container ship and then it makes its way into Western markets. And at that point, we start carrying and taking over. So this whole idea of the supply chain and your responsibility to do due diligence, to audit, to understand what's going on, it's not necessarily a direct legal liability, but certainly from a reporting and due diligence perspective, that comes up. And it's not just the legal liability. And certainly I I know that I'm sure a lot of what Dean emphasizes is the the reputational risk um, of how this can play out and the importance of of carrying out these um, uh, processes carefully. And policy, Dean touched on that as well. Drafting policies, making sure that those are are in place. And and I expect, and and I'm sure Dean can speak to this, that that maybe the the first experience that we kind of had with our clients who who were, were almost oblivious to this and then started thinking about it is that, right, what do we need to do? Let's draft the policy. We'll put it on our website. We'll publish it. You know, box checked. We're done. Um, but all of a sudden, from a lawyer's perspective, you start thinking about, well, what is the legal consequence of, of drafting a policy? Who's going to rely on that? Is, uh, you know, do we have SEC concerns? Do we have you know, in, activist investors and shareholders? Um, are the directors who may be signing these statements, are they, uh, are they somehow liable for the things that the companies are, are saying? So all of these themes that, that Dean has been touched on which have been present since the guiding principles were first published, which are, I think, inherent in Dean's work, are really now starting to feed through into the practical day-to-day legal advice that we're giving clients because all of a sudden we've got laws that are, that are, are compelling our clients to, to look closely at, at these issues. That's interesting. You know, earlier you talked about the, the framework where governments are now reacting through the the UK's Modern Slavery Act and the the other legislation you mentioned in Canada and elsewhere. It seems like another dynamic that's going on is that through other legal mechanisms, existing legal mechanisms, non-governmental entities or people are trying to enforce human rights obligations by leveraging the guiding principles. So you have companies making representations and then you have investors you know, taking legal action potentially to ensure that the company is following 
those you know human rights commitments that they've made. Uh, how has that impacted your your practice, Martin? And is that a big part of it? These other legal channels, or is direct and direct implementation of guiding principle standards the, the greater risk to your clients? I think um, you know these issues come home to roost from a legal perspective in a, in a number of different ways. That, Joshua, I think you you sort of touched touched on it broadly, but certainly not that I've been personally involved in these, but there are there is direct litigation. Certainly in in the U.S., you've got the um, the Alien Tort Statute. We've seen some some litigation brought under that. Um, there's a Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act where there is, I think, some ongoing litigation uh, there. In the U.K., we've we've seen some cases in the U.K. Supreme Court around. Um, whether or not um, companies that are based in the UK can be liable directly for what their subsidiaries do in foreign countries. So the extraterritorial direct effect uh, where the rubber meets the road in terms of liability, damages, um, criminal sanctions, things like that. You know, I haven't in my practice seen so much of that directly. There's certainly lawyers and law firms that, that specialize in that. I know that um, our clients of v &E are, are concerned about it. The other angle is on the sort of investor side of, of how this uh, ties back in. And again, it isn't just reporting, as, as Dean was saying. I mean, yes, there are policies. Yes, there's due diligence. But what does that mean in practice? And there is this concern about liability. I mean, that's why we start having um, when we're talking to clients, we're not just got necessarily an employment lawyer like me talking about HR issues, but we have litigators, we have capital markets lawyers, we have finance lawyers. There's this whole world of ESG finance and, and people wanting to put the labels on, on kind of the, the financial products that they're selling. These are all kind of, you know, the, the liability will creep in any number of, of ways. And I think that that is where we're seeing the shift from general awareness in terms of, and, and to, to actually implementing these things and being conscious of where the liability actually arises. And I'll, I'll address this to both of you. Maybe, Martin, you can start. You just mentioned ESGs, which is a new, relatively new corporate buzzword and certainly an investment framework. How do those efforts relate to the guiding principles that were promulgated a decade ago? I mean, in my mind, um, ESG is really just the, the implementation of the guiding principles, um, the principles living in the document that Dean um, outlined and that kind of sat there for a while and then all of a sudden is in the public consciousness. I think ESG certainly is one of the ways in which we're now suddenly all, all aware of it. And so I, th I think that's probably how I would answer it is to say it's really the, the implementation of the guiding principles. And I expect that Dean probably has, uh, you know, th this has been certainly a, a topic of, of conversation for him in terms of the due diligence uh, that he assists clients with. It's definitely got that ESG angle to it as being the, the label that, that covers the concrete action that's being taken. And I, I guess I, thanks, Martin. I, I guess I would say there's two things that stand out for me in terms of what ESG means in terms of implementation and lessons learned from the guiding principles. But the first is the S. You know, we refer to the S as the middle child of ESG, you know, that, that little annoying aspect no one really understands and pays attention to and no, you know, really don't know what to do with it. And that's that's the case that it's very, you know, environment, yeah, we know how to, we know what we're talking about, we can see it, we can measure it, we have good metrics. Governance, we're okay on, you know, we're getting better at uh, understanding governance requirements and how to manage those. But the social requirements make people's eyes glaze over. And so that's 
that's it's a difficult but increasingly important aspect because day after day we see more and more information in the, in the press about how human rights issues and other social issues are affecting the sustainability and the profitability of companies. The second is, you know, ESG is a is a construct of the financial industry, right? And and Martin, you alluded to this. You know, the, it's it's the, there's the political pressure, there's the companies taking their own initiatives, and then there's the the investors, right? The pressure coming from investors on ESG has been phenomenal, and that's really been the driving force that we've seen on beyond the beyond the GPs. The, it's been the driving force that we've seen on progress on um, e, uh, on human rights issues, uh, the S and ESG. Um, so, for example, lenders, as part of their own due diligence on on projects, we are working um, on the the uh, Keystone XL pipeline and the um, you know the, the with all the climate issues and the environmental issues and the concerns. What really rose to the top for the investors is how are, you know how are the Native American people being treated and, and the other host communities. You know, show us that this has been done responsibly and that we as investors are not going to be left hanging with this major, not just reputational, but investment liability. I'd like to ask you both this question, which is which industries are you seeing the guiding principles having the biggest impact in your practices? And Martin, I'll, I'll ask you that first. I, I mean, I, it's no surprise to anyone that uh, Vincent and Elkins with its headquarters in Houston and uh, and historic relationships with the energy industry, that that's probably the one I would touch on first. Um, it's, as I said, I think earlier, when you look at um, the United Nations uh, kind of global heat map of, of where human rights abuses occur, I mean, there are a lot of countries in there where our clients are operating um, directly. And so energy, whilst some of these industries can garner some negative press, I think that they're also kind of on the cutting edge here as well. So if, you, if you're looking for the kind of latest in ESG policies, human rights, modern slavery policies and things like that, I mean, it's oftentimes these industries that, that are leading. Now, there's no question there's still a lot of work to do, uh, but you know, they tend to be the clients that have perhaps the more sophisticated in-house knowledge and and the ones that are directing more resources to addressing these issues um but like i said i mean it, it's this uh it's this movement into supply chains as well where we find that a lot of other industries are are catching up so you may have clothes retailers and and electronics um companies that that suddenly everybody's focused on where this stuff is coming from and from a consumer perspective um you probably don't really see much difference between the, the brand that you see in the local mall and the the, the individuals in these far-flung countries who are actually putting these these components together. And I think that um, that's where the kind of the, the, the public perception, the legal risk and, and, and all of it's coming together. So certainly some, some industries uh, that I've mentioned are more exposed directly to it, um, but it's becoming a, a far broader issue. Dean, how about from your perspective? Yeah, and Joshua, I would say that you know the, the industry that I think really kind of grabbed this and went went forward with it first was the textiles industry, and, and Martin mentioned that you know, and that was just, there were some really horrific situations there with factories in Asia and other parts of the world where there was just a, a need crying out for for change, and so there's some good progress there in textiles, you know, in you know clothing and apparel and all across that board. I think in the in the electronics industry, there has was some early progress, but we've seen in the Apple case where some of the defendants have 
kind of said, as Martin said, you know, that these are these are our suppliers. We they have we have nothing to do with them. So that was that was led by their lawyers, and certainly no disparagement to lawyers. But but I think that they have been very very cautious as an industry that the the electronics industry and, and maybe missed an opportunity to lead that they're looking to take up now. The extractive industry is maybe at a different tier. So we'll look at mining, which I think is a bit ahead of oil and gas, where they have been for the last ten years. So buoyed by the guiding principles, made great progress I think in intending human rights. Lots of lots of room and need for improvement, but um, but they've done a nice job. You know, particularly we, we saw Rio Tinto last year, made the unfortunate um, move of detonating explosives in some 40,000 year old caves. And I think that the industry kind of looked at that and said, you know, initially their competitors might have said, tisk tisk, Rio Tinto. And then in the second breath said, that could have been us. You know, we have the same kind of systems and expertise that they do. So we're seeing a lot of mining companies now saying, how do we understand cultural heritage? How do we manage cultural heritage, particularly when you can't really see it or understand it? You know, how, how do we get our hands around it like we do financial risk and engineering risks and you know, tax risk, things like that? How do we manage this uh, systematically? And then the last thing I'll say is I think where there's some opportunity is in the renewables industry, where renewables has the wonderful advantage of being supported by a lot of the NGOs that are fighting against the kind of companies that Martin firm, Martin's firm works with a lot, right? But at the same time, they are putting installations into, into areas that where, where vulnerable people live, they're using labor that could be, you know, tainted by unfair practices. And so there's a, there's a I think a real need for, and, and some of the leading renewables companies are just now starting to say, hey, we, we need to kind of do something about this. It's interesting, you know, you mentioned renewables uh, just yesterday, yeah, Exxon shareholders voted uh, board of directors members on, and a um, you know activist investor group was able to put two board members on with the express intention of addressing environmental issues um, that they believed Exxon had not addressed. Are those types of issues environmental issues buoyed by the guiding principles as a human rights issue? Is that a, a, just an entirely different regime? How do you see if you do the guiding principles? playing out uh, in the environmental space. Um, yeah, I mean, we, I've mentioned Martin's comments on this, but we spent a lot of time yesterday afternoon, last evening, this morning, talking with some clients about the human rights implications of not only Exxon uh, shareholder vote, but the Chevron shareholder vote, where there was you know, basically in simple terms, forcing them to kind of look at scope two and scope three emissions that were supplier emissions, for example, or, or customer emissions. and. And that it points to really the, the energy transition and leaving the renewables out of this. How are big, how's big oil going to transition to this? In IPICA, the International Petroleum Industry Association, has been spending some good time on trying to think through the energy transition and what is fair transition. So the human rights aspects of the um, energy transition being considered the fair transition. And, um, you know, so there are a lot of, you know, the implications of that are, as we look at climate risk and we are forced to disclose climate risk or you know, make decisions about how to improve or minimize our climate risk through, through shareholder and investor pressure, um, what does that mean about our, our operations effect on Port Arthur, Texas or on, you know, on Kinshasa or on you know, uh, you know, any points around the world where companies are operating 
and um, dealing with not only issues of uh, sea level rise, but climate gentrification, where people, poor, poor people who are not able to move to higher ground are losing land to people with more money who can move to higher ground and creating more and more of a divide between the rich and poor. So that's one example of the kind of implications that companies have to deal with on a human rights basis based on climate. And they'll be increasingly expected to do that as the shareholder activism um, votes continue to, to, to great pressure. Martin, what, what's your take on whether the guiding principles have bolstered some of the environmental activism that we've seen as a, as a human rights issue in, in the legal community? Or, or your take on these types of shareholder votes generally? Yeah, I mean, I I see it kind of big picture. It's really sort of a, an interesting intersection with this kind of post-COVID world. I, I, I see it. It's it's very difficult to pass these things out individually and, and point to any one thing happening in in isolation. Um, but all of the Dean, all of the points that Dean has has touched on, I think, are extremely relevant where they all interact. And as we're sort of emerging from hopefully uh, the pandemic and lawmakers, courts, the public, everybody is aligned with certain principles, which I do think are reflected in the guiding principles. And so post COVID, we're certainly, you know, we've got the climate emergency. People are looking at that. People are thinking about how do we legislate for that? How do we address it? But COVID has also exacerbated inequalities. And we have to figure out how we're going to address both of them, ideally at the same time. So when you're talking about renewables and you're talking about the just just the, the sheer the manufacture of the of the technology and the infrastructure that we need to support this new environmental um, industry or this aspect of it, then definitely the human rights obligations and concerns are all tied into it. And there's a general expectation. I mean, the mantra is. Um, certainly, we use it here. The build back better. I think that's that's been echoed in the United States as well. It's kind of the all of the above. I think that you have to look at all of it. And the interesting thing will be is um, how those human rights um, principles then will be we will be translated into even more direct government policy and legislation, and and how you know, you you have to address an economic. Um, catastrophe, a human rights catastrophe, an environmental uh, risk that the world is facing and trying to do all of that together. There are inevitably going to have to be some trade-offs. Um, but I think the hope is that, that the companies that have, have, have absorbed the principles in the guiding principles and have institutionalized them, not just through drafting policies, but including them in, you know, again, when we're talking about due diligence, that's not just a box checking exercise. It's understanding your industry, understanding your company, understanding your supply chains, and then learning from what you've discovered in due diligence and then applying that. I think those will be the businesses that are best placed to manage the new legal landscape as it develops. Uh, those that are not committed to it, they're always going to be running to catch up. Um, and as much as as we as lawyers try to advise our clients to keep on board, I mean, yes, we tend to look at the at the very sort of strict legal aspects of it. Um, I think really companies need to start listening more to people like Dean uh, and and understanding and absorbing the lessons to be learned and applying those principles in practice, because then they'll they'll have the foundations to adapt to, to the changing in the in the laws. Uh, Martin, what is it about 
certain businesses that causes them to lag in their efforts to address these, these human rights issues? Um, I think we've we've touched on some of those points, which is, you know, there's some industries that are far more focused on it just because they they live and breathe it every day and others who are just waking up to the fact that it can, can apply to them. Uh, from a practical perspective, and I imagine that a lot of, you know, maybe people who are listening to this podcast would agree that when we talk to our clients, they are, they're busy, they have limited resources, even though they may be very uh, profitable, very well run, very efficient. Um, they uh, have got, you know, there are only so many hours in the day. And so from when I'm talking to, to corporate counsel, I mean, there are, there are, they're fighting fires. I mean, that is their day job. And they have to figure out which fires they need to focus on. And so um, that's definitely a change that we have seen that even in private equity, I mean, we, we, we represent a lot of private equity and investment firms. Uh, these are very lean run businesses, um, but they invest in a very diverse portfolio of industries and companies. And it has definitely been part of now their due diligence process, their investment strategy. I mean, all of the things that we've been talking about, um, but those that have lagged have tended to not uh, develop the, the in-house muscle and the in-house uh, capability of understanding, addressing, and then making sure that that gets pushed up to the higher levels of the organization where there's then buy-in and then it gets pushed back down so that it becomes part of the corporate culture. And I think that it can be a little bit uh, cultural in a, in a particular uh, business. It can be industry-led. Um, it's pretty wide-ranging. I mean, I'm interested to hear what Dean's take on it is just from a practical perspective, those businesses that he finds are receptive and quick to respond and ahead of the game versus those that, that are slow and whether he, he, he kind of sees any patterns there as to, to which ones are struggling. I would absolutely agree with you, Martin. It's it what, what defines a, a slower mover, mover, but uh, from a from a more agile and quicker mover and a better performer on human rights is the the extent to which it's treated as a must do activity rather than a you know it's, it's nice to have but we just don't we don't we don't have resources we don't have time to to do it in our list of priorities. Um, I think we we are hearing boards talk a lot more about human rights. They're certainly talking a lot about ESG, right? So that's that's a you know there are ESG committees. There are standing agendas every board meeting for a lot of companies on ESG. Um, but again, that that middle child S is is difficult to measure and to understand. So despite some very very good intentions uh, and demands at the board level, it becomes hard to manage at the operational level as an operational priority to get to your point, Mark. Um, so we've seen that as, as a challenge. And I think maybe, maybe you know, the, the fix to it um, is, is just to try to really try to put some more rigorous systems in place so that uh, you know, senior managers of companies, operations managers can, can say, okay, this is how we're going to integrate human rights issues into our operations because it's important to our board, it's important to our investors. And, and now, you know, we've got to find a way to manage it like we do other practical day-to-day issues. Do the guiding principles provide help for companies that may be resource constrained to actually address these issues? I mean, it sounds like, you know, there's just, there's only so many fires that companies can put out with the risks that they face. Do the guiding principles help with that at all? I would say the guiding principles are a framework. They're helpful as a framework. They've, they've opened the door for companies to kind of say legitimately, there is a basis for us to think about what our responsibilities are for human rights. And that's a universally agreed 
set of principles. So governments understand it, NGOs understand it, investors understand it, and our employees understand it. So they've been helpful in that regard. They don't get down to that next level of detail about saying, and, and then here's how we need to manage them. I think it's uh, I think it's no coincidence, really, that it, it, certainly in my experience that the due diligence has been one of those things where our clients are kind of latched onto it because, again, it's a familiar concept to them. And that's certainly reflected in the guiding principles, this concept of due diligence. It's just one part of the overall puzzle. Um, but they are the guiding principles are difficult if you take them as a document and as a set of, of concepts. I think that anybody in a sort of amongst my clients, they would read them and generally agree with everything that's in there. It's all in some ways um, obvious, logical, and any right thinking person would agree with the principles that are in there. But it's the implementation that I think is the struggle. And it's understanding how you take this from being a principle and a theory and an aspiration into something uh, more more concrete, and the due diligence is certainly an aspect of that. And I and I think again, when I when I'm talking to in-house counsel, they're familiar with the concept and and they're okay with with launching into that. But we've also talked about how cautious a lot of these companies are, and and when we think about lawyers in particular, and you're always looking at uh, you know we're paid to think about the worst case scenario, we're paid to think about the risk and counsel our clients on where that risk is. And sometimes it's appropriate that the the business leaders don't be guided too much by the lawyers who themselves are feeling their way through the issue. And again, policies, whilst we would also always counsel our clients that, you know, once you put it in writing, you could be held to account for this, not necessarily directly, but there is a kind of legal nexus between putting out a a statement and then being held to account um, through some uh, legal mechanism. And so, if you, I think it, you know, you, you need to you need to balance that approach. One is to be cautious, but it's cautious in a way of moving forward and actually doing these things, but then following up, um, living up to the standards that you you aspire to. When you do due diligence, actually consider the results of that and follow up, uh, and that's how you ultimately address it. Is lack of due diligence the biggest risk that you advise your clients about, Martin, these days, or are there what are the risk profiles that you really focus on for your clients? I think um, within, within the aspect of the guiding principles have put in place these these principles. Right. I, I mean, I think at this point, doing nothing is really the biggest risk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, burying your head in the sand, uh, thinking maybe that this is just a, a fad or, or something that is going to get a pass. I think that that is probably the biggest risk. And however clients choose to address it, I mean, there are any number of ways. I mean, those who are you know, the big multinationals who have the resources to, to build that capability in-house, they may do so uh, leaning on um, firms like Dean's to provide them with the leg up or, or, or actually even to carry that stuff, uh, carry these principles forward. I think ultimately it's doing nothing or treating it as a pure compliance in the worst possible way of compliance exercise of, of box checking. I think that um, uh, whether that may avoid some perception of legal risk in the short term by not going too far too fast. I think it, uh, in the longer run, it, it can just store up um, bigger issues. Dean, from, from your perspective, what are there any additional sort of risks that we haven't mentioned that, that you really advise your clients about, you know, from that you know, sort of going beyond compliance uh, point of view? Um, well, I, I talked about, I think a lot of times our clients approach us not because they're concerned about human rights per se, and they are, but when it's a business issue, when it's a key supplier, 
when it's uh, you know loss of competitiveness because you can't attract employees into a into, into a certain environment or you can't retain the employees. Those are you know business issues that are driven by human rights concerns. And so and so we and you know companies like Martin's try to look at those in terms of business concerns. How do we understand these human rights risks and how do we provide for remedies that could alleviate the business risk? Um, I think Martin's. It's interesting talking, listen to you, Martin. I, th I think you're right. I think the, one of the biggest risks is probably doing nothing. And that was not the case 10 years ago, even five years ago. But now, and that's maybe a, an important implication of the GPs that I just thought of, is, is that it has opened not only people's eyes, but expectations for this is something that not only can, but needs to be managed as a business issue, right? And so, for example, in the Apple case, where a council on behalf of child laborers in uh, mines in Democratic Republic of Congo brought suit against Apple and like all of the biggest tech companies in the world and basically said, you knew that this was happening and you didn't do anything about it. You know, that that was the, that was is my understanding. That was the ac accusation. So that's a, you know, that, that yeah, I think you're right on on target, Martin, and that will be a continuing evolving risk. It, I mean, there's an interesting dynamic at play and you both mentioned that, you know, the guiding principles obviously were, were here for the 10 year anniversary. And there was some sort of progression throughout that time frame where it was going slowly, maybe some slow early adopters. And now there's sort of a floodgates mentality where businesses in particular uh, have to address it and governments have started to address it more. And Martin, you also mentioned the fact that it's soft law, right? The guiding principles are soft law. They are not themselves directly legally binding on the, the participants in the system and the framework that they provided. I mean, is this a success story on how soft law can transition into implementation? Is from a normative perspective, could it have been differently and should it have been differently? Or do you all view this as as a, you know, a almost a framework for how you can use soft law to change behavior? I'll start with you, Martin. Yeah, sure. Um Obviously, there, there'll be a lot of different perspectives to, to that answer, and I, I wouldn't speak to, uh, for those, the, John Ruggie and the people who uh, who drafted the, the guiding principles as to whether or not they think it's um, a success. I think in their minds, from what I've read, it's a it's a qualified success. I think that they've seen real progress, but they've, it's also developed in some ways. Um, so some of the, the steps have been lacking. I mean, from my perspective, I do see the, the success in the sense that I've seen how my own practice has developed. I mean, I'm an employment lawyer by trade, so I'm dealing with you know, hiring and terminating individuals in the United States or in the UK and uh, you know, discrimination claims and things like that. There's that, that there's a, the whole S aspect of the ESG, but very much close to home. And as I've looked at the way my career has developed and what the client's demands are, um, it really has shifted markedly in the last 10 years. Um, Tom Wilson, who uh, is in our group at Vincent Elkins, has, has been a real kind of leading light in this area and certainly with the Texas State Bar as well in identifying this as a, as a coming issue. And for quite some time, we've been writing on it on our firm's uh, labor and employment blog and it kind of feels like you're just kind of whistling into the wind for a while. And then all of a sudden it comes back at you and you've got clients picking up the phone. So in terms of the success, I mean, I think that if you generally agree with the principles that are in, in the guiding principles, which I, I think most people do, um, and then you're translating it into the real life experience of lawyers like me who have a practice area that touches on it, 
um, it really now suddenly becomes a real part of our, of our daily practice. Uh, and if that's the case, I mean, if clients are willing to pick up the phone and pay to listen to us, speak to them about these issues, um, I think that means something. And uh, maybe some of it is just an immediate concern about compliance risk, but that inevitably snowballs and develops. And as the laws uh, pick up um, and we start seeing actually maybe some um, civil fines, you know, it's a big headline, multi-million dollar uh, liability going out, which itself then generates the, the PR disaster for the companies that have been exposed to it. I think that is where, you know, over the next few years, we're really going to see um, things things pick up. And I'll, and I'll get to the next 10 years here momentarily, Dean, but, but what's your take on whether the guiding principles have been a success? And, and maybe also with the focus on the their implications for the role of businesses and the responsibility of businesses within the international framework as it relates to human rights? I think the framers would see it as a success that uh, at the start of a success that needs much more work. Um, we have had the opportunity to interview six um, really, I think, important business and human rights leaders for a series of um, Videos we're going to be producing in June, and one of them was uh, one of the one of the framers worked with, with Dr. Rungi on it, and I think that they they would reflect that yeah, there's, there's really to the extent that we wanted to open people's eyes and legitimize um, action on human rights and responsibilities on human rights, that's tremendously effective. I I believe that, but there's a lot of lot more work to do. Um, you know, I think when we think about let's think about how hard it's going to be to change behaviors around human rights. When you think about the safety um, culture shift that we all saw 20, 30 years ago, right? And how hard that was to get coming and what a great success it's been for, for the oil and gas industry, for the mining industry, for others. And what we're asking ourselves and, and companies to do is kind of that same kind of shift, but it's much more difficult because number one, it's harder to measure change in, around human rights and um, you know, civil rights uh, than it is around safety. And two is it's, it's just laden with personal, you know, sticky, difficult, um, stigmatic issues that around, you know, how we how we talk about and think about race, how we think about gender pay equity, you know, all, all those things is very, very complicated and difficult. So it's going to it's going to be hard. Maybe this will get it get into a little bit the future. But I think we can expect and demand and we need to expect and demand more progress and more success. But it's going to take time and a lot of effort. Yeah, so let's transition to that now. So we're at the 10th anniversary of the Guiding Principles. Where will we be 10 years from now? Martin, what do you see the developments in the legal community and the legal framework over the next 10 years? Both, I guess, if you have insight onto the, you know, if there are going to be any changes to the principles themselves. And, and second, you know, how is the legal community going to shift over the next decade? So I don't know. I, mean, I don't know how the UN is thinking about the principles themselves, as far as I'm aware, they kind of stand as they are. But I, I know that they have some projects going on where they're re-examining where they are, you know, where the next ten years are going. From a lawyer's perspective, what I'm expecting is is certainly more headlines, right? And like I touched on this briefly before. I could imagine a scenario where some. Um, maybe U US headquartered multinational is suddenly hit with an, a massive fine from the EU 
um, or, or under the, the new French law. Um, and we've seen that in data privacy, certainly. I mean, another uh, area that is, is developing incredibly quickly, and so people become aware of it, and then all of a sudden it comes home when you get these landmark cases. Now, those cases on their own, um, uh, we know that they, they take years to play out. Um, but I think the headlines themselves will be generating the awareness. And maybe, you know, ultimately, as lawyers, we need to look uh, to what the legislators in the specific countries are, are thinking and doing. And so it's this interesting dynamic between um, public sentiment, um, public pressure, um, where the politicians think that they need to legislate and act. And I, I think that we're in my mind, we're kind of waiting for this next step. I think what the EU is doing right now is certainly a big part of it. And I'm very interested to see where the US is going, because in so many respects, the US um, is sets a benchmark, whether it's higher or lower than where it should be. Um, but certainly what's coming out of the SEC in terms of their ESG reporting requirements, they, those are really interesting. So uh, state laws in California, it's really fascinating to see how that patchwork is going to play out. But once we we see that i mean, I, I think my, my my short answer to that is i don't know it's so hard because you see so many different threads coming together and it's hard to know which one is going to pull the hardest uh, and which direction we're going to get going to go in but um certainly certainly i i talked about our blog plenty more blog posts to come i think plenty <laughs> more headlines to report on and talk about and uh, and that's definitely will we'll keep us busy for the next 10 years Sure, and, and we'll be sure to include both those blogs and, and Dean a, a reference to your videos if, if we can in, in the uh, the location where we're going to publish this video. Um, Dean, what about from your perspective? Where are the next ten years going to go uh, in the realm of corporate responsibility in response to the the guiding principles? I think well, the UN High Commission for Human Rights has formed a working group uh, that and they called the GP Plus Ten. So they're working on that now. A group of you know very well respected academics is is working on trying to set some 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 targets. And I think we'll see something from them fairly soon. So keep your eye on the the UN um, High Commission for Human Rights website, and I can I can provide the the link in, into you guys. I think so. So that so that'll be helpful. I think to the extent that the GPs were helpful in providing a framework for how we, how we can have a common understanding of what, what's expected of us as business, as governments, governments. The US does not have any comprehensive uh, human rights legislation. Europe has led the way on it. Australia has done a nice job on it. Uh, Martin can tell you way more than I could about that. Uh, but that's you know separate from the SEC and the US you know, uh, Customs and Border Patrol and um, the State Department and others who are, who are kind of looking at um, imports uh, that, that could, control of imports that could, could uh, discourage slave labor or, or the human rights violations. Separate from those initiatives, there's really not much going on in the US. So there's a, there's a need for that. I think, the, I, as I mentioned, the financial industry is really doing a nice job of pushing this issue and elevating it in their both due diligence and in their, the way they think about their overall investments. Ultimately, it's going to come down to business, I think, you know, for how businesses decide to behave and how, how they, to what extent they feel like they can have operational control and leverage over human rights that impact their businesses and, um, and, and then how they do that. So I think where we see progress, it'll be driven by investors, um, you know, probably by the good work that's being done in parliaments of Europe and Australia. 
and in the boardrooms and in the, the operation, you know, daily, op the, the Monday operations meetings at the mining companies, at the oil and gas companies, at the jewelry companies and textile companies around the world that you know, say, you know, how are we going to, you know, we've got a financial risk here. How are we going to manage that? We've got a, you know, an employment risk, but, but let's talk about these human rights risks we have that's on the agenda and how are we going to manage that and build it into our day-to-day -day operational thinking. Even from your point of view, is that expansion, is the need for broader adoption across industries, companies, you know, the, the billions of people on the planets, or is it a depth of what's being done in response or a little bit of both? I think it's depth, Josh, and you, 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 it's a good question. There, you're, it's hard to find a company that doesn't, um, ha hasn't put the words human rights in some sort of document or hasn't talked about it at a board meeting. Um, certainly, you know, within the Fortune 1000, um, but but well below that. Um, you know, any regional banks in 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 the U.S. are talking about diversity and inclusion, and they're they're adding human rights considerations on that. So, um, but it's the depth to which those issues are understood, and it's the extent to which there uh, there is rigor in applying the the outcome of that understanding. Well, we've we've expended our hour. This has been truly fascinating, Martin. I don't know if you have any you know closing thoughts you'd like to to share with us. No, I think maybe just picking up on on what uh, you know the, the the last few points that were raised is that I think again ultimately this is going to be led by the boardrooms that Monday morning morning meeting, and I think that's one of the strengths of the guiding principles is the recognition that this isn't a top down approach that that it's not going to be solved certainly not by the UN. Uh, but by national governments either. They have an important part to play, certainly in terms of uh, the remedy and, and various aspects of, of the principles. Um, but ultimately, it's businesses uh, that will lead on this. And we all recognize uh, more so perhaps now than we ever have done before, the power that business has and the importance of business in being a partner to achieving these ends. And I think that's where, uh, again, as a, as a lawyer, there's such an interesting intersection between uh, all these various themes and how we how we counsel our clients is, is definitely not necessarily as much black letter stuff as understanding and trying to um, tell where the wind is blowing from. Dean, any closing remarks from you? No, I think Martin summed it up beautifully. I think it's, it's, a, it's a good spot to leave it. Great. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion of an area of real overlap between business and international human rights. Um, I hope our uh, viewers enjoy it. We'll be posting this to the, uh, our links uh, very shortly. So thank you. Thank you, Martin. And thank you, Dean. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. For more information, visit us online at ilstexas.org forward slash human hyphen rights hyphen committee.